I want to begin by asking a hypothetical question, uh, and for you to imagine this, I want you to imagine that you posted the following thing up in one of your social media accounts. God is angry with you and will judge you for your sins. A bit confronting, right? Some of those kind of people who are not kind of aggressive, but passive-aggressive people, passive people, that's the last thing that we'd ever want to do. I want you to imagine the kind of responses that you would get from your friends and contacts. Now, I imagine there would be a whole range of things, most of them not positive, some of them outright outraged. But I think one of the ones that you would get in recurring fashion is something on the lines of this. How could you say such a thing? God has no right to be angry if he is that's petty, and therefore I don't want to have anything to do with him. Now, this is our second week in the book of Jeremiah. And if you were here last week, I gave you six reasons, not one, not two, but six reasons why studying this book is a really bad idea. It's big, it's chronologically confused, but the promise that I gave you was that if we did the hard work together this semester, then out of this random assortment of prophetical oracles and sermons and history will emerge something coherent and profoundly relevant to your life in this world. Not because we make it relevant, but just like Ed reminded us, because when we're talking about the realities of where we spend an eternity, it will always be relevant to you. But because of that, as we study Jeremiah, we're only going to reach that kind of moment of aha uh, when we come to understand God's judgment in the way that the Bible understands God's judgment. Because the book of Jeremiah is a book of judgment. It is actually a turn or burn sort of thing. Uh, which made me feel really awkward now. It's like, oh no, reassess this entire talk, uh, make it somewhere in the middle. Um, But it is actually more nuanced than that, because as we actually dig deeper into Jeremiah, we'll see that that old cliche, turn and burn, uh, is, is true in essence, but there's actually more to it that helps us understand why that thing might not actually be as outrageous as some of our imaginary social media friends might think it is. Uh, Because judgment, it kind of sits at the heart of the book. It's almost 52 chapters of God almost exclusively saying, you have sinned against me, you have not repented, and therefore I will destroy you. That is a heavy message, isn't it? Uh, And it's hard enough to carry if you're completely on board with it. If you've been a Christian for a long time, you've had to reconcile some of those things. Uh, But if it's a new concept, or, or if you think like our world does, that it's actually an unnecessary and evil response to people, uh, it's a petty and malicious God that's doing it, then, then it's going to be even harder to kind of make sense of. And what I want us to see today, and what today's chapters, chapters 2 to 6, help us to do, is frame our understanding of God's judgment. So it's not just a hand grenade tossed into a social media feed, but it's actually something that actually has some sense to it. That it's not the petty revenge of a childish God, but it's actually the measured and principled and pained response of a loving God. And also, in addition to seeing that, that if we were in his position, we would do the exact same thing. So that's the pledge. Let's see how we go. But before we begin, it's kind of helpful for us to locate where we are in the book of Jeremiah. Sort of like when you go to a big shopping centre for the first time. Where's JB Hi-Fi? I've got no idea where I am. What do you do? You find the big kind of panel thing and you hit the thing until it says you are here. So that's what we're going to do. And we're going to do that at the beginning of every talk this semester. We're going to locate ourselves twofold. Once in the book, kind of in terms of its structure, and then once in terms of history, just to kind of uh, help us kind of understand where we are in time. 
Uh, and so let's start with the book. You should have something there in your outline. Um, you've got this nice kind of weird looking bar. Uh, this is where we are. Um, we are at the very beginning. Surprise. Uh, we did chapter one last week. And the thing that we saw there was that the word of God comes to Jeremiah and commissions him as a prophet. And he does so in a way that makes abundantly clear that it is the word, not the prophet, that is the principal actor in this drama. Uh, and so as we read through the book of Jeremiah, we'll see that major sections will be introduced simply by saying, the word of the Lord came to me. And um, we see that in chapter 2, verse 1, at the beginning of our reading today, the word of the Lord came to me. Uh, and if we were to keep flipping and flipping, we actually see it again in chapter 7, verse 1. And the word of the Lord that came to Jeremiah from the Lord. It's slightly different, but it's the same thing. So even though it's not a hard and fast rule, it's a helpful rule. And what it does for us is that it helps identify the first section of the book, chapters 2 to 6, and that's why we're in that big chunk today. And so that's where we are in the book. You are here at the very beginning, just after kind of the, the, the prologue or, or the introduction. Now, in terms of where we are in history, well, if you look at the timeline there, also on your sheet, I've kind of given you a dumbed-down version, so not as much information to overwhelm us this time. Uh, Jeremiah turns up in the reigns of the last three kings of Judah, Josiah, Jehoiakim, and then Zedekiah. And he preaches for about 40 years or so. Now, and where we are in terms of his life, we're pretty well at the very beginning. This is the beginning of his commission as prophet. These are some of the first words that we hear him say. Uh, they may not be the first things that he ever said, but the first, they're the first things that we hear. And that matters, I think, because these are the words that will set up everything else that follows and help frame what we see and hear Jeremiah speak. Now, you'll see on your outlines that there are two distinct movements, a part one and a part two. And it's in the first movement, in chapter 2, verse 1 to 4, verse 4, that we're given a metaphor that informs everything else, especially the word of judgment that Jeremiah speaks. And that word of judgment is that uh, God describes himself as a betrayed husband and Judah as an adulterous wife. So let's have a look at part one. God, the betrayed husband, confronts Judah, his adulterous wife. Now, he begins in chapter 2, verse 2, by saying this. And by the way, we're doing a lot of Bible flipping today, so you know, get your fingers uh, ready. Uh, verse 2, go and proclaim in the hearing of Jerusalem, this is what the Lord says. I remember the devotion of your youth, how as a bride you loved me and followed me through the wilderness, through a land not sown. Israel was holy to the Lord, the first fruits of his harvest. All who devoured her were held guilty and disaster overtook them, declares the Lord. See, God describes his relationship with his people like a marriage. And understanding this is key to understanding everything that happens in the book of Jeremiah. Because it puts God's judgment in context. This isn't the kind of cold, clinical execution of justice, unfeeling, uncaring. It's not the opposite of the spectrum, just wild and out of control and just like, when just trying to blow everything up. This is impassioned, but it's pained. And it happens in the context of a relationship, one in which one of the partners has cheated. And you see what happens in chapter 2, verse 4 and 5. Let's go from verse 5. This is what the Lord says. What fault did your ancestors find in me that they strayed so far from me? They followed worthless idols and became worthless themselves. They did not ask, where is the Lord who brought us up out of Egypt and led us through the barren wilderness, through a land of deserts and ravines, a land of drought and out of darkness, a land where no one travels and no one lives? 
I brought you into a fertile land to eat its fruit and rich produce, but you came and defiled my land and made my inheritance detestable. The priests who should have asked didn't ask, where is the Lord? And those who dealt with the law should have known me, but they didn't know me. The leaders rebelled against me. The prophets prophesied not by my spirit, but by Baal, following worthless idols. And so Judah, very early on, stops following after God and instead worships other gods. And they kind of do this pretty well from the very beginning of the relationship. And so effectively, to kind of keep the metaphor going, Judah cheats on God and they do it on the honeymoon. That's how kind of, kind of emotionally wrenching this is. And so, so what does God do? Well, we see what he does in verse 9. He brings charges. He initiates divorce proceedings. And he says, therefore, I bring charges against you, declares the Lord, and I'll bring charges against your children's children. Cross over to the coasts of Cyprus and look. Send to Kedah and observe closely. See if there has ever been anything like this. Has a nation ever changed its gods? Yet they are not gods at all. But my people have exchanged their glorious God for worthless idols. Be appalled at this, you heavens, and shudder with great horror, declares the Lord. And God, he supplies the grounds of divorce. Uh, he continues on. And so we continue to read through chapter 2 and chapter 3, everything that's happened. And two things become increasingly clear as we shift through this. The first is that Judah's infidelity isn't just a one-off. It's not like an error of judgment or like, oh, I just got carried away in the moment, had a bit too much wine to drink at that kind of party down by the field, or, you know, like I got overwhelmed by the emotion and I'm young, so I just made a silly mistake. What happens as we read this and, and God lays out the behaviour of Judah is that we see that this is the settled pattern of a wayward wife. And God uses some intense language to describe it. He calls Judah a prostitute. The ESV uses the word whore. Like, these are not kind of, kind of PG-rated things. It's a good thing you're all adults and, and you're at uni. But, but feel the force of the language. Have a look at chapter 2, verse 20. Long ago, you broke off your yoke and tore off your bonds. You said, I will not serve you. Indeed, on every high hill and under every spreading tree, you lay down as a prostitute. Uh, we skim down to verse 23. How can you say, I am not defiled? I have not run after the Baals. See how you behaved in the valley. Consider what you have done. You are a swift she-camel running here and there, a wild donkey accustomed to the desert, sniffing the wind in her craving, in her heat who can restrain her. Any males that pursue her need not tire themselves. At mating time they will find her. Can you imagine saying that to, to anyone that you know? And yet here is God saying it to his people. But it gets worse. Chapter 3, verse 1. Let's start halfway down the verse. But you lived as a prostitute with many lovers. Would you now return to me, declares the Lord? Look up to the barren heights. This is where they worship the idols and see. Is there any place where you have not been ravished? By the roadside, you sat waiting for lovers. Sat like a nomad in the desert. You have defiled the land with your prostitution and wickedness. And Judah basically is what God says. Judah is a nation who will sleep with anyone except her husband. And just, just feel that. God accuses Judah of being a whore. I feel like that's like the teenage boy kind of comment, like when, you, when, when somebody breaks up, you, oh, yeah, you're this. But, 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 but this is actually true. This is actually Israel's demonstrable history. 
And God says, this is how you're behaving. So the first thing is that it's not a one-off. The second thing that becomes clear as he lays out his divorce proceedings, and this is actually the sadder one, is that they're not sorry for what they've done. Have a look at chapter 3, verse 8. He's talking here about Israel. Remember the two kingdoms that split? Israel's already been sent into exile because they've done the same thing. Uh, And he says this about them. I gave faithless Israel her certificate divorce and sent her away because of all her adulteries. Yet I saw that her unfaithful sister Judah had no fear. She also went out and committed adultery. Because Israel's immorality mattered so little to her, she defiled the land and committed adultery with stone and wood. In spite of all this, her unfaithful sister Judah did not return to me with all her heart, but only in pretense, declares the Lord. And if you remember last week, remember King Josiah, he set up a whole bunch of religious reforms for the nation. I think what this is nodding to is the fact that, you know, he might have been able to legalize stuff and change things, but nothing's changed. The heart of Judah still remains wayward and promiscuous. And you can sort of imagine the scene, can't you? Serial cheater comes home with tears in his eyes and the wife gives him yet another chance and he promises that it won't happen again and and he kisses her goodnight and then he rolls over and just starts texting the next woman. That's what's happening here. And if you're feeling sick and good, because I think this is what God wants us to feel, it's awkward, it's it's, it's gross. And God yells out in chapter 2, verse 12, at the end of our reading that Rachel read for us, be appalled at this, you heavens. Shudder with great horror. To put it bluntly, my wife is a whore and she doesn't care. My people have forsaken me and exchanged me for false gods and they don't care. And I want to take a moment to dwell in that, because I don't think that's typically how we understand the rejection of God, is it? Our world thinks, uh, it doesn't really think about this in moral categories at all. You're free to believe what you believe. Uh, the issue is of no consequence, just choose what you want. But, but God says to us, no, that's, that's not it at all. Think of the most intimate and trusting and precious relationship in the world. Think of your husband or your wife, and then betray them. Again and again and again. Because when you choose to worship something else other than me, that is what you're doing. And the thing to understand is that this sin of Judah's is not just Judah's. It's ours as well. We've got to be careful here. Judah had a unique relationship with God, characterized by marriage. The rest of humanity didn't have that. However, as his creatures, we are by definition in a relationship with him. And a little bit later on in the New Testament, in Romans chapter 1, we see that we have done exactly the same thing. Here it is up on the screen. Romans chapter 1, verse 18. The wrath of God, wrath is just another word for anger uh, against sin, is being revealed from heaven against all the godlessness and wickedness of people who suppress the truth by their wickedness. A little bit later in verse 21, for although they knew God, they neither glorified him as God nor gave thanks to him, but their thinking became futile and their foolish hearts were darkened. Although they claimed to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images made to look like a mortal human being and birds and animals and reptiles. So we see, just like Judah, all of humanity, instead of worshipping the creator, we worship the creation. We might not be so crass as to bow down to idols, although that is true for the majority of the world, go to Asia, go to Africa. But every single one of us, myself included, will pursue and chase after and serve and trust in anything as we conduct our lives. 
except for the God who made us, except for the God who is the only one who can give us the things that we seek. We are like that wild donkey running around in the valley. And the picture image that God gives us for this action, for this way of life, for this treatment of him, the thing that we're all guilty of, the picture that he gives us is sexual infidelity. And that is a rough image to give us, isn't it? But that is the thing that God wants us to hear, see and feel. So that's Judah. How does God respond? I think he does two things. One's expected and one's unexpected. The first way is he responds as you'd expect anyone in this situation to respond. He gets angry. Uh, That makes sense, because imagine if this had happened to you. How would you feel? You found the man of your dreams, the woman of your dreams, you get married. And then you find out that they've cheated on you. And it hasn't been a mistake, it hasn't been an error of judgment, but it's been a consistent pattern with multiple partners, false repentance, no signs of change over time. How would you feel? I think the English language has a very specific set of words for this kind of situation, right? Devastated, gutted, shocked, appalled. But I think there's one more, one that we reserve that we all have, furious. Not the kind of flash-in-the-pan kind of anger, but the deep, burning rage directed at somebody who deserves it. It's kind of trawling through the internet on, on, on the weekend. Probably not a good idea to type things in like um, stories of when man betrayed woman and, and that sort of stuff. But it's, it's, it's incredible. Yeah, it's just like, I, I run Covenant Eyes as well, so now all my, my, my guys are just like, what are you Googling and why? It's like, Beth, it's okay. It's, it's, it's for research purposes. Uh, and... and, and, and Maybe I won't use that line either. But, but one, of the things, one of the things that is incredible as you go through the story upon story of human heartbreak and human hurt is a, is a question that keeps coming back. How do I get past the anger? I want to give them a second chance, a third chance, a fourth chance, but I can't throw it. And if we can understand that and grapple with that, then we understand God. Because he says that all sin is relational betrayal. And if we can see that, then we can see that God's response of anger and judgment to Judah's infidelity, to our own infidelity, it's actually not abnormal or unreasonable, is it? It's completely sane and entirely justified. Now, let me ask you another question. That's how you feel. What would you do? Found the man of your dreams, the girl of your dreams, you find out they're cheated, consistent pattern, no repentance, no sign of change. What, what would you do? Uh, Here's some advice I got from the internet, again, during my research. Thank you, Charmaine. Get rid of the worthless piece of trash. How dare he? Now, we laugh because, you know, Charmaine, she's on the internet again. Calm down, girl. But but that, that is what we think, right? When this sort of thing happens, there is no question. Get rid of him. He does not deserve anything. I mean, we, we start throwing household appliances, don't we? Find anything that's heavy and just start breaking stuff. But here's what's incredible about God. The God who made and rules the world, our world. He does something expected. He gets angry, but then he does something unexpected. He invites Judah to come back home. And you see it in chapter 3, verse 11. Now, he's just compared Judah and Israel. Judah's worse than Israel. And so God tells Jeremiah to turn to the north and talk to Israel, currently in exile in Assyria, and call out to them to return to him and be restored. It starts in verse 11, and it continues down, and it continues down. And as the invitation unfolds, it slowly becomes apparent as we work our way through chapter 3, that he's offering this invitation in the hearing of Judah, not just to rebuke them for their own unrepentance, 
but to invite them to repent as well. And he finishes the section uh, there in chapter 4, verse 3, by saying, this is what the Lord says to the people of Judah and to Jerusalem. Break up your unplowed ground and do not sow among thorns. Circumcise yourselves to the Lord. Circumcise your hearts, you people of Judah and inhabitants of Jerusalem. Or my wrath will flare up and burn like fire because of the evil you have done. Burn with no one to quench it. And so here is God, wounded lover, righteous lover, justified in his anger. And what Jeremiah wants us to see is not just God's pain, but God's patience. And once we see that, it completely undermines our caricature of God as some kind of unhinged, capricious and malicious child, just kind of waiting to pounce on the smallest kind of wrongdoing. That's us. We're the ones that are throwing the blenders and setting fire to clothes and stuff. But that's not God. God, the Lord, the Lord is a compassionate and gracious God. This is Exodus 34, slow to anger, abounding in love and faithfulness. And for 900 years, he has patiently warned and patiently waited for his wife to come home. So the question we need to be asking is not why is God so angry, but why is God so patient? And we see it not just in Jeremiah, but in the gospel of Jesus too, don't we? Because he has promised a day of judgment when Jesus will return and judge the world. He doesn't bring it now and end the suffering and the pain. He could, but he chooses not to because he wants to give the world, you and I, an opportunity to repent before it's too late. He is angry. He will pour out that anger, but he will hold it back in patience and love in a way that we couldn't, that we wouldn't, because he's higher and greater and more wonderful than we are. And he doesn't want us to experience the estrangement of the relationship, but actually the redemption and restoration of it, no matter what it is that we've done. But the thing to get in all of this is that's just the first movement. We see something of God's anger, something of God's patience, but there is a time where God's judgment will be poured out. For Judah, it was now. Uh, for us, it'll be sometime in the future. And it's the second half of these chapters that show us that. Because in chapter 4, verse 5, everything changes. Uh, and the God who is slow to anger finally becomes angry. And what I hope you can see is how understanding God in this space helps you see the rightness about what's going to happen. Because God resolves to judge his people, and there are only two words to describe it, fury and terror. And, and we use those words kind of throw around the place, but those are words that we've got to be careful to use, and these are words that are fully appropriate for this context. Have a look at chapter 4, verse 5. God says through Jeremiah, Announce in Judah and proclaim in Jerusalem and say, Sound the trumpet throughout the land. Cry aloud and say, Gather together. Let us flee to the fortified cities. Raise the signal to go to Zion. Flee for safety without delay. For I am bringing disaster from the north, even terrible destruction. A lion has come out of his lair. A destroyer of nations has set out. He has left his place to lay waste your land. Your towns will lie in ruins without inhabitant. So put on sackcloth, lament, and wail, for the fierce anger of the Lord has not turned away from us. We keep reading. Let's skip down to verse 13. Look, he advances like the clouds. His chariots come like a whirlwind. His horses are swifter than eagles. Woe to us, we are ruined. Jerusalem, wash the evil from your heart and be saved. How long will you harbor wicked thoughts? A voice is announced from Dan, proclaiming disaster from the hills of Ephraim. Tell this to the nations. Proclaim concerning Jerusalem. A besieging army is coming from a distant land, raising a war cry against the cities of Judah. They surround her like men guarding a field because she has rebelled against me, declares the Lord. 
Your own conduct and actions have brought this on you. This is your punishment, how bitter it is, how it pierces to the heart. And from this point on, it's just oracle after oracle after oracle of God visually and visibly describing what's going to happen to Judah. And when you kind of track through it, some patterns emerge, and here's one of them. Uh, Think about chapter 4, verse 5. They're told to flee to the fortified cities. But then we go to chapter 6, verse 1, and they're told to flee from Jerusalem. For disaster looms out of them, not even terrible destruction. But then you keep going in chapter 6, verse 25. They're told, don't even go out to the fields or walk on the roads, for the enemy has a sword and there is terror on every side. So they're not safe in the city, they think they are, so they go. Then they're not safe in the country, they think they are, then they go. Everywhere they turn, God is waiting for them with a sword. And the point of chapters 4 to 6 is to build in you, build in us, a terror of what is about to face Judah because of the judgment of God. And one of the interesting things that we'll see as the weeks progress and we look through Jeremiah is actually the person of Jeremiah and how he experiences this. Uh, And you see part of his experience back in chapter 4, verse 19. Uh, I want you to see how he feels about all of this. Oh, my anguish, my anguish. Chapter 4, verse 19. I writhe in pain. Oh, the agony of my heart. My heart pounds within me. I cannot keep silent. For I have heard the sound of the trumpet. I have heard the battle cry. And so you've got this picture of the prophet running around the city of Jerusalem, unable to not hear, almost like a, a, a jump in future, like there's an overlay over his vision and over his ears, where everywhere he turns, he sees what's going to happen to the city that he's currently running around in at the moment. And he ends in verse 21 by saying, How long must I see the battle standard and hear the sound of the trumpet? He can't escape it. He's terrified. And so that terror, as he runs through the city, drives him to a desperate search. Because look at chapter 5, verse 1. God addresses him and he says this. Chapter 5, verse 1. Go up and down the streets of Jerusalem. Look around and consider. Search through her squares. If you can find but one person who deals honestly and seeks the truth, I will forgive this city. And so Jeremiah, in terror, holding the word of God within his breast, not willing to let it out on his people, goes running, holding, if you will, like vomit in his mouth that he doesn't want to spew up. And he runs around and he says in verse 3 of chapter 5, Lord, do your eyes not look for truth? You struck them, but they felt no pain. You crushed them, but they refused correction. It's a reference to God's kind of warnings of his prophets and droughts and stuff that he sent in the lead up to this to tell them to turn from sin. He says, they made their faces harder than stone and refused to repent. Verse 4, I thought, well, these are only the poor. They're the dumb ones. They're foolish. Now, for they do not know the way of the Lord, uh, the requirements of their God. They never went to university, apparently. So I know what I'll do. I'll go to the leaders. These are the people who will know. And I'll speak to them. Surely they know the way of the Lord, the requirements of their God. But with one accord, they too had broken off the yoke and torn off the bonds. So Jeremiah, in his desperate search, can't even find a single person who is willing to repent. And so in chapter 6, verse 10, he cries out, To whom can I speak and give warning? Who will listen to me? Their ears are closed so they cannot hear. The word of the Lord is offensive to them. They find no pleasure in it. And then he reflects on his own situation, but I'm full of the wrath of the Lord. I've got the words of judgment in my mouth, and now I can't hold it in. And so God says to him in verse 11, Pour it out on the children in the street and on the young men gathered together. Both husband and wife will be caught in it. The old, those weighed down with years. 
Their houses will be turned over to others together with their fields and their wives when I stretched out my hand against those who lived in the land, declares the Lord. It's terrible. Terrifying. Furious. Horrific and appalling. But then so too was their sin. And when we get to the end of this whole section and we see how the whole thing has kind of panned out, God reveals to Jeremiah the purpose for which he ran around frantically through the city declaring the judgment of God. And we see it there right at the end of chapter, 20, uh, of chapter 6 in verse 27. He says to him, I have made you a tester of metals and my people the ore that you may observe and test their ways. Do you know what a saying is? Have you heard that? Maybe some of you engineers might have come across. I didn't know it was kind of technically a word. I knew the words like test or analyse or refine. Uh, Basically, it's the process of trying to determine and kind of isolate quality material from ore. And what you'd do is you'd kind of melt it down in a pot and melt it all down, and everything worthless would be burned up, and the only thing that would remain would be precious metal. There's only valuable things that were left behind. And what God says to Jeremiah is that as you spoke my word, as the prophets before you spoke my word, it was as if the fire of my judgment and warning was coming on them and refining them and burning away what was worthless so that the gold, the precious silver or whatever it was in the middle of it would remain and actually be shown for what it was. But look at what Jeremiah finds in verse 28. They are all hardened rebels. Going about to slander, they are bronze and iron. They all act corruptly. The bellows blow fiercely to burn away the lead with fire, but the refining goes on in vain. The wicked are not purged out. They are called rejected silver because the Lord has rejected them. So part of the function of God's word of judgment is to expose hearts, to burn away the worthlessness and show what's kind of really there. And what do we see in the case of Judah? There's nothing of value in them. And I want to ask the question then to us. What's in your heart? Because the thing that you respond with to Jeremiah, your responses to what you've seen, more precisely what you've heard, will tell you where your own heart stands with the Lord. And this is true whether you're a Christian or not a Christian. I feel like if you're not a Christian, you're kind of investigating, welcome. Sorry, this is a pretty heavy kind of talk. Uh, But it really kind of strikes at the heart of the problem uh, that Christianity solves through Jesus. We have done things that have deeply offended God. And he will punish us for them if we don't turn to him in repentance. And his word of judgment comes to each and every one of us as a refining fire And our response will be indicative of whether or not we actually think that what we have done matters. Because what the Bible shows us here in Jeremiah, in Romans 1, all throughout is that each and every one of us within our own hearts has a bent towards spiritual idolatry. We are rebellious against God and we betray him at any moment that we get. And I just want to ask the simple questions. When we do that, and we disobey God or we don't live our lives in accordance to him or whatever it is, are we horrified like God is horrified? Does it wound us like it wounds God? Does it move us to repentance, to seek restoration with the God who loves us and in Jesus Christ offers us a third, fourth, fifth, a thousandth chance? Or do we respond like Judah? 
They did a whole bunch of things over the course uh, of these chapters. They denied that there was a problem. They minimised the issue, said it wasn't a big deal. They repented, but it was sort of pretense. They kind of said all the right things, did all the right things in, in their little kind of Christian community. Uh, but their life under the surface was anything but the life that God called them to do. And so my question for each of you is, does the refining go on in vain? If you're a Christian, do you take your faith seriously or is it just mechanical? Is it something that you do because that's what your family does? You go to church, you're going to turn up to see you because that's what Christians do. But has it actually hit your heart and affected your life? Or is it all pretense? If you're not a Christian, have you thought about the possibility, just maybe, just maybe, that the life you live apart from God is not just kind of an amoral choice, but actually something that has deep moral consequences because it's personal? And will you heed the word of judgment? To make, maybe actually just go, oh, you know what, maybe I should think about this, dig a little bit deeper, see what's going on in, the, in my heart, and maybe see what God has to say to me about how he can restore me to himself. Because that is, in effect, what we see the word of God doing in judgment to Judah. It exposes them, and they're found wanting. What about you?